BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Chapter 33 of The Leavenworth Case by Anna Catherine Green This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. CHAPTER Thirty Three, UNEXPECTED TESTIMONY Polonius, what do you read, my lord? Hamlet, words, words, words. Hamlet. Mrs. Belden paused, lost in the sombre shadow which these words were calculated to evoke, and a short silence fell upon the room. It was broken by my asking for some account of the occurrence she had just mentioned, it being considered a mystery how Hannah could have found entrance into her house without the knowledge of the neighbours. "'Well,' said she, "'it was a chilly night, and I had gone to bed early. I was sleeping then in the room off this, when, at about a quarter to one, the last train goes through R at twelve-fifty, there came a low knock on the window-pane at the head of my bed. Thinking that some of the neighbours were sick, I hurriedly rose on my elbow, and asked who was there.' The answer came in low, muffled tones. Hannah, Miss Leavenworth's girl, please let me in at the kitchen door. Startled at hearing the well-known voice, in fearing I knew not what, I caught up a lamp and hurried round to the door. Is anyone with you? I asked. No, she replied. Then come in. But no sooner had she done so than my strength failed me, and I had to sit down, for I saw she looked very pale and strange, was without baggage and altogether had the appearance of some wandering spirit. "'Hannah!' I gasped. "'What is it? What has happened? What brings you here in this condition, and at this time of night?' "'Miss Leavenworth has sent me,' she replied, in the low, monotonous tone of one repeating a lesson by rote. "'She told me to come here, said you would keep me. I am not to go out of the house, and no one is to know I am here.' "'But why?' I asked, trembling with a thousand undefined fears, what has occurred? I dare not say, she whispered. I am forbid. I am just to stay here and keep quiet. But I began, helping to take off her shawl, the dingy blanket advertised for in the papers. You must tell me. She surely did not forbid you to tell me. Yes, she did, every one, the girl replied, growing white in her persistence, and I never break my word fire couldn't draw it out of me. She looked so determined, so utterly unlike herself, as I remembered her in the meek, unobtrusive days of our old acquaintance, that I could do nothing but stare at her. "'You will keep me,' she said. "'You will not turn me away?' "'No,' I said. "'I will not turn you away.' "'And tell no one,' she went on. "'And tell no one,' I repeated. 
This seemed to relieve her. Thanking me, she quietly followed me upstairs. I put her into the room in which you found her, because it was the most secret one in the house, and there she has remained ever since, satisfied and contented as far as I could see, till this very same horrible day. "'And is that all?' I asked. "'Did you have no explanation with her afterwards? Did she never give you any information in regard to the transaction which led to her flight?' "'No, sir. She kept a most persistent silence. Neither then, nor when, upon the next day I confronted her with the papers in my hand, and the awful question upon my lips as to whether her flight had been occasioned by the murder which had taken place in Mr. Leavenworth's household, did she do more than acknowledge she had run away on this account. Some one or something had sealed her lips, and, as she said, fire and torture should never make her speak. Another short pause followed this. Then, with my mind still hovering about the one point of intensest interest to me, I said, This story, then, this account which you have just given me of Mary Leavenworth's secret marriage, and the great strait it put her into, a strait from which nothing but her uncle's death could relieve her, together with this acknowledgment of Hannah's that she had left home and taken refuge here, on the insistence of Mary Leavenworth, is the groundwork you have for the suspicions you have mentioned? Yes, sir. That and the proof of her interest in the matter which is given by the letter I received from her yesterday, and which you say you now have in your possession. Oh, that letter! I know, Mrs. Belden went on in a broken voice, that it is wrong, in a serious case like this, to draw hasty conclusions. But, oh, sir, how can I help it, knowing what I do? I did not answer. I was revolving in my mind the old question, was it possible, in face of all these later developments, still to believe Mary Leavenworth's own hand guiltless of her uncle's blood? "'It is dreadful to come to such conclusions,' proceeded Mrs. Belden, "'and nothing but her own words written in her own hand would ever have driven me to them, but—' "'Pardon me,' I interrupted. But you said in the beginning of this interview that you did not believe Mary herself had any direct hand in her uncle's murder. Are you ready to repeat that assertion? Yes, yes, indeed. Whatever I may think of her influence in inducing it, I never could imagine her as having anything to do with his actual performance. Oh, no, oh, no! Whatever was done on that dreadful night, Mary Leavenworth never put a hand to pistol or ball or even stood by while they were used. That you may be sure of. Only the man who loved her, longed for her, and felt the impossibility of obtaining her by any other means could have found nerve for an act so horrible. Then you think, Mr. Clavering is the man? I do. And, oh, sir, when you consider that he is her husband, is it not dreadful enough? It is indeed said I, rising to conceal how much I was affected by this conclusion of hers. Something in my tone or appearance seemed to startle her. "'I hope and trust I have not been indiscreet,' she cried, eyeing me with something like an incipient distrust. "'With this dead girl lying in my house, I ought to be very careful, I know, but—' "'You have said nothing,' was my earnest assurance, as I edged towards the door in my anxiety to escape if but for a moment, from an atmosphere that was stifling me. No one can blame you for anything you have either said or done to-day, 
but and here i paused and walked hurriedly back i wish to ask one question more have you any reason beyond that of natural repugnance to believing a young and beautiful woman guilty of a great crime for saying what you have of henry clavering a gentleman who has hitherto been mentioned by you with respect no she whispered with a touch of her old agitation i felt the reason insufficient and turned away with something of the same sense of suffocation with which i had heard that the missing key had been found in eleanor leavenworth's possession you must excuse me i said i want to be a moment by myself in order to ponder over the facts which i have just heard i will soon return and without further ceremony hurried from the room by some indefinable impulse i went immediately upstairs and took my stand at the western window of the large room directly over mrs belden the blinds were closed the room was shrouded in funereal gloom but its sombreness and horror were for the moment unfelt i was engaged in a fearful debate with myself was mary leavenworth the principal or merely the accessory in this crime did the determined prejudice of mr gryce the convictions of eleanor the circumstantial evidence even of such facts as had come to our knowledge preclude the possibility that mrs belden's conclusions were correct that all the detectives interested in the affair would regard the question as settled i did not doubt but need it be was it utterly impossible to find evidence yet that henry clavering was after all the assassin of mr leavenworth filled with the thought i looked across the room to the closet where lay the body of the girl who according to all probability had known the truth of the matter and a great longing seized me oh why could not the dead be made to speak why should she lie there so silent so pulseless so inert when a word from her were enough to decide the awful question was there no power to compel those pallid lips to move carried away by the fervour of the moment i made my way to her side ah god how still with what a mockery the closed lips and lids confronted my demanding gaze a stone could not have been more unresponsive with a feeling that was almost like anger i stood there when what was it i saw protruding from beneath her shoulders where they crushed against the bed an envelope a letter yes dizzy with the sudden surprise overcome with the wild hopes this discovery awakened i stooped in great agitation and drew the letter out it was sealed but not directed breaking it hastily open i took a glance at its contents good heavens it was the work of the girl herself its very appearance was enough to make that evident feeling as if a miracle had happened i hastened with it into the other room and set myself to decipher the awkward scrawl this is what i saw rudely printed in lead pencil on the inside of a sheet of common writing-paper i am a wicked girl i have known things all the time which i had ought to have told but i didn't dare to he said he would kill me if i did i mean the tall splendid-looking gentleman with the black moustache who i met coming out of mr leavenworth's room with a key in his hand the night mr leavenworth was murdered he was so scared he gave me money and made me go away and come here and keep everything secret but i can't do so no longer 
I seem to see Miss Eleanor all the time crying and asking me if I want her sent to prison. God knows I'd rather die. And this is the truth and my last words, and I pray everybody's forgiveness, and hope nobody will blame me, and that they won't bother Miss Eleanor any more, but go and look after the handsome gentleman with the black moustache. End of chapter 33「A half-hour had passed. The train upon which I had every reason to expect Mr. Grice had arrived, and I stood in the doorway, awaiting with indescribable agitation the slow and laboured approach of the motley group of men and women whom I had observed leave the depot at the departure of the cars. Would he be among them? Was the telegram of a nature peremptory enough to make his presence here, sick as he was, an absolute certainty? The written confession of Hannah throbbing against my heart, a heart all elation now, as but a short half-hour before it had been all doubt and struggle, seemed to rustle distrust, and the prospect of a long afternoon spent in impatience was rising before me, when a portion of the advancing crowd turned off into a side-street, and I saw the form of Mr. Grice hobbling, not on two sticks, but very painfully on one, coming slowly down the street. His face, as he approached, was a study. "'Well, well, well!' he exclaimed as we met at the gate. "'This is a pretty how-do-you-do, I must say. Hannah dead, eh? And everything turned topsy-turvy. Hmm. And what do you think of Mary Leavenworth now?' It would therefore seemed natural in the conversation which followed his introduction into the house and instalment in Mrs. Belden's parlour, that I should begin my narration by showing him Hannah's confession, but it was not so. Whether it was that I felt anxious to have him go through the same alternations of hope and fear it had been my lot to experience since I came to R, or whether, in the depravity of human nature, there lingered within me sufficient resentment for the persistent disregard he had always paid to my suspicions of Henry Clavering, to make it a matter of moment to me to spring this knowledge upon him, just at the instant his own convictions seemed to have reached the point of absolute certainty, I cannot say. Enough that it was not till I had given him a full account of every other matter connected with my stay in this house, not till I saw his eye beaming, and his lip quivering with the excitement, incident upon the perusal of the letter from Mary, found in Mrs. Belden's pocket, not indeed until I became assured from such expressions as tremendous, the deepest game of the season, nothing like it since the Lafarge affair, that in another moment he would be uttering some theory or belief that once heard would for ever stand like a barrier between us, did I allow myself to hand him the letter I had taken from under the dead body of Hannah. 
I shall never forget his expression as he received it. "'Good heavens!' cried he. "'What's this?' "'A dying confession of the girl Hannah. I found it lying in her bed when I went up a half-hour ago to take a second look at her.' Opening it, he glanced over it with an incredulous air, that speedily, however, turned to one of the utmost astonishment, as he hastily perused it, and then stood, turning it over and over in his hand, examining it. A remarkable piece of evidence, I observed, not without a certain feeling of triumph, quite changes the aspect of affairs. "'Think so?' he sharply retorted. Then, whilst I stood staring at him in amazement, his manner was so different from what I expected, looked up and said, "'You tell me that you found this in her bed. Whereabouts in her bed?' "'Under the body of the girl herself,' I returned. I saw one corner of it protruding from beneath her shoulders, and drew it out. He came and stood before me. "'Was it folded or open when you first looked at it?' "'Folded, fastened up in this envelope,' showing it to him. He took it, looked at it for a moment, and went on with his questions. "'This envelope has a very crumpled appearance, as well as the letter itself. Were they so when you found them?' "'Yes, not only so, but doubled up, as you see.' "'Doubled up. You are sure of that? Folded, sealed, and then doubled up? as if her body had rolled across it while alive? Yes. No trickery about it? No look as if the thing had been insinuated there since her death? Not at all. I should rather say that, to every appearance, she held it in her hand when she lay down, but, turning over, dropped it, and then laid upon it. Mr. Grice's eyes, which had been very bright, ominously clouded. Evidently he had been disappointed in my answers. Paying the letter down, he stood musing, but suddenly lifted it again, scrutinised the edges of the paper on which it was written, and, darting me a quick look, vanished with it into the shade of the window-curtain. His manner was so peculiar, I involuntarily rose to follow, but he waved me back, saying, "'Amuse yourself with that box on the table, which you had such an ado over.' See if it contains all we have a right to expect to find in it. I want to be by myself for a moment. Subduing my astonishment, I proceeded to comply with his request, but scarcely had I lifted the lid of the box before me when he came hurrying back, flung the letter down on the table with an air of the greatest excitement, and cried, Did I say there had never been anything like it since the Lafarge affair? I tell you there has never been anything like it in any affair. This is the rummiest case on record. Mr. Raymond—' and his eyes, in his excitement, actually met mine for the first time in my experience of him—'prepare yourself for a disappointment. This pretended confession of Hannah's is a fraud.' "'A fraud?' "'Yes, fraud. Forgery.' what you will. The girl never wrote it." Amazed, outraged almost, I bounded from my chair. "'How do you know that?' I cried. Bending forward, he put the letter into my hand. "'Look at it,' said he. "'Examine it closely. Now, 
tell me what is the first thing you notice in regard to it why the first thing that strikes me is that the words are printed instead of written something which might be expected from this girl according to all accounts well that they are printed on the inside of a sheet of ordinary paper ordinary paper yes that is a sheet of commercial note of the ordinary quality of course but is it why yes i should say so look at the lines what of them oh i see they run up close to the top of the page evidently the scissors have been used here in short it is a large sheet trimmed down to the size of commercial note yes and is that all you see all but the words don't you perceive what has been lost by means of this trimming down no unless you mean the manufacturer's stamp in the corner mr gryce's glance took meaning but i don't see why the loss of that should be deemed a matter of any importance don't you not when you consider that by it we seem to be deprived of all opportunity of tracing this sheet back to the choir of paper from which it was taken no <laughs> then you are more of an amateur than i thought you don't you see that as hannah could have had no motive for concealing where the paper came from on which she wrote her dying words this sheet must have been prepared by someone else no said i i cannot say that i see all that can't well then answer me this why should hannah a girl about to commit suicide care whether any clue was furnished in her confession to the actual desk drawer or choir of paper from which the sheet was taken on which she wrote it she wouldn't yet especial pains have been taken to destroy that clue but then there is another thing read the confession itself mr raymond and tell me what you gather from it why i said after complying that the girl worn out with constant apprehension has made up her mind to do away with herself and that henry clavering henry clavering the interrogation was put with so much meaning i looked up yes said i ah i didn't know that mr clavering's name was mentioned there excuse me his name is not mentioned but a description is given so strikingly in accordance here mr gryce interrupted me does it not seem a little surprising to you that a girl like hannah should have stopped to describe a man she knew by name i started it was unnatural surely you believe mrs belden's story don't you yes consider her accurate in her relation of what took place here a year ago i do must believe then that hannah the go-between was acquainted with mr clavering and with his name undoubtedly 
then why didn't she use it if her intention was as she here professes to save eleanor leavenworth from the false imputation which had fallen upon her she would naturally take the most direct method of doing it this description of a man whose identity she could have at once put beyond a doubt by the mention of his name is the work not of a poor ignorant girl but of some person who in attempting to play the role of one has signally failed but that is not all mrs belden according to you maintains that hannah told her upon entering the house that mary leavenworth sent her here but in this document she declares it to have been the work of black moustache i know but could they not have both been parties to the transaction yes said he yet it is always a suspicious circumstance when there is a discrepancy between the written and spoken declaration of a person but why do we stand here fooling when a few words from this mrs belden you talk so much about will probably settle the whole matter a few words from mrs belden i repeated i have had thousands from her to-day and find the matter no nearer settled than in the beginning you have had said he but i have not fetch her in mr raymond i rose one thing said i before i go what if hannah had found the sheet of paper trimmed just as it is and used it without any thought of the suspicions it would occasion ah said he that is just what we are going to find out mrs belden was in a flutter of impatience when i entered the sitting-room when did i think the coroner would come and what did i imagine this detective would do for us it was dreadful waiting there alone for something she knew not what i calmed her as well as i could telling her the detective had not yet informed me what he could do having some questions to ask her first would she come in to see him she rose with the clarity anything was better than suspense mr gryce who in the short interim of my absence had altered his mood from the severe to the beneficent received mrs belden with just that show of respectful courtesy likely to impress a woman as dependent as she upon the good opinion of others ah and this is the lady in whose house this very disagreeable event has occurred he exclaimed partly rising in his enthusiasm to greet her may i request you to sit he asked if a stranger may be allowed to take the liberty of inviting a lady to sit in her own house it does not seem like my own house any longer said she but in a sad rather than aggressive tone so much had his genial way imposed upon her a little better than a prisoner here go and come keep silence or speak just as i am bidden and all because an unhappy creature whom i took in for the most unselfish of motives has chanced to die in my house just so exclaimed mr gryce it is very unjust but perhaps we can write matters i have every reason to believe we can this sudden death ought to be easily explained you say you had no poison in the house no sir and that the girl never went out 
never sir and that no one has ever been here to see her no one sir so that she could not have procured any such thing if she had wished no sir unless he added suavely she had it with her when she came here that couldn't have been sir she bought no baggage and as for her pocket i know everything there was in it for i looked and what did you find there some money in bills more than you would have expected such a girl to have some loose pennies and a common handkerchief well then it is proved the girl didn't die of poison there being none in the house he said this in so convinced a tone she was deceived that is just what i've been telling mr raymond giving me a triumphant look must have been heart disease he went on you say she was well yesterday yes sir or seems so though not cheerful i did not say that she was sir very what ma'am this girl giving me a look i don't understand that i should think her anxiety about those she had left behind her in the city would have been enough to keep her from being very cheerful so you would returned mrs belden but it wasn't so on the contrary she never seemed to worry about them at all what not about miss eleanore who according to the papers stands in so cruel a position before the world but perhaps she didn't know anything about that miss leavenworth's position i mean yes she did for i told her i was so astonished i could not keep it to myself you see i had always considered eleanor as one above a reproach and it so shocked me to see her name mentioned in the newspaper in such a connection that i went to hannah and read the article aloud and watched her face to see how she took it and how did she i can't say she looked as if she didn't understand asked me why i read such things to her and told me she didn't want to hear any more that i'd promised not to trouble her about this murder and that if i continued to do so she wouldn't listen mm. and what else nothing else she put her hand over her ears and frowned in such a sullen way i left the room that was when about three weeks ago she has however mentioned the subject since no sir not once what not asked what they were going to do with her mistress no sir she has shown however that something was preying on her mind fear remorse or anxiety no sir on the contrary she has oftener appeared like one secretly elated but exclaimed mr gryce with another sidelong look at me that was very strange and unnatural i cannot account for it nor i sir i used to try to explain it by thinking her sensibilities had been blunted or that she was too ignorant to comprehend the seriousness of what had happened but as i learned to know her better i gradually changed my mind there was too much method in her gaiety for that i could not help seeing she had some future before her for which she was preparing herself as for instance she asked me one day if i thought she could learn to play on the piano and i finally came to the conclusion she had been promised money if she kept the secret entrusted to her and was so pleased with the prospect 
that she forgot the dreadful past and all connected with it at all events that was the only explanation i could find for her general industry and desire to improve herself or the complacent smiles i detected now and then stealing over her face when she didn't know i was looking not such a smile as crept over the countenance of mr gryce at that moment i warrant it was all this continued mrs belden which made her death such a shock to me i couldn't believe that so cheerful and healthy a creature could die like that all in one night without anybody knowing anything about it but wait one moment mr gryce here broke in you speak of her endeavours to improve herself what do you mean by that her desire to learn things she didn't know as for instance to write and read writing she could only clumsily print when she came here i thought mr gryce would take a piece out of my arm he gripped it so when she came here do you mean to say that since she has been with you she has learned to write yes sir i used to set her copies and where are these copies broke in mr gryce subduing his voice to its most professional tone and where are her attempts at writing i'd like to see some of them can't you get them for us i don't know sir i always made a point to destroy them as soon as they had answered their purpose i, I didn't like to have such things lying around but i will go and see do said he and i will go with you i want to take a look at things upstairs anyway and heedless of his rheumatic feet he rose and prepared to accompany her this is getting very intense i whispered as he passed me the smile he gave me in reply would have made the fortune of a thespian mephistopheles of the ten minutes of suspense which i endured in their absence i say nothing at the end of that time they returned with their hands full of paper-boxes which they flung down on the table the writing-paper of the household observed mr gryce every scrap and half-sheet which could be found but before you examine it look at this and he held out a sheet of bluish foolscap on which were written some dozen imitations of that time-worn copy be good and you will be happy with an occasional beauty soon fades and evil communications corrupt good manners what do you think of that very neat and legible that is hannah's latest the only specimens of her writing to be found not much like some scrawls we have seen eh no mrs belden says this girl has known how to write as good as this for more than a week took great pride in it and was continually talking about how smart she was leaning over he whispered in my ear this thing you have in your hand must have been scrawled some time ago if she did it then aloud but let us look at the paper she used to write on dashing open the covers of the boxes on the table he took out the loose sheets lying inside and scattered them out before me one glance showed they were all of an utterly different quality from that used in the confession this is all the paper in the house said he are you sure of that i asked looking at mrs belden who stood in a sort of maze before us 
"'Wasn't there one stray sheet lying around somewhere, a fool's cap or something like that, which she might have got hold of and used without your knowing it?' "'No, sir. I don't think so. I only had these kinds. Besides, Hannah had a whole pile of paper like this in her room, and wouldn't have been apt to go hunting round after any stray sheets.' "'But you don't know what a girl like that might do. Look at this one,' said I, showing her the blank side of the confession. "'Couldn't a sheet like this have come from somewhere about the house? Examine it well. The matter is important.' "'I have. And I say no. I never had a sheet of paper like that in my house.' Mr. Grice advanced and took the confession from my hand. As he did so, he whispered, "'What do you think now?' many chances that hannah got up this precious document i shook my head convinced at last but in another moment turned to him and whispered back but if hannah didn't write it who did and how came it to be found where it was that said he is just what is left for us to learn and beginning again he put question after question concerning the girl's life in the house receiving answers which only tended to show that she could not have brought the confession with her, much less received it from a secret messenger. Unless we doubted Mrs. Belden's word, the mystery seemed impenetrable, and I was beginning to despair of success, when Mr. Grice, with an askance look at me, leaned towards Mrs. Belden, and said, "'You received a letter from Miss Mary Leavenworth yesterday, I hear?' "'Yes, sir.' "'This letter?' he continued, showing it to her. "'Yes, sir. Now, I want to ask you a question. Was the letter, as you see it, the only contents of the envelope in which it came? Wasn't there one for Hannah enclosed with it?' "'No, sir. There was nothing in my letter for her. But she had a letter herself yesterday. It came in the same mail with mine.' "'Hannah had a letter,' we both exclaimed. "'And in the mail?' "'Yes, but it was not directed to her. It was—' Casting me a look full of despair—directed to me. It was only by a certain mark in the corner of the envelope that I knew—' "'Good heavens!' I interrupted. "'Where is this letter? Why didn't you speak of it before? What do you mean by allowing us to flounder about here in the dark, when a glimpse at this letter might have set us right at once?' "'I didn't think anything about it till this minute. I didn't know it was of importance. I—' but I couldn't restrain myself. "'Mrs. Belden, where is this letter?' I demanded. "'Have you got it?' "'No,' said she. "'I gave it to the girl yesterday. I haven't seen it since.' "'It must be upstairs, then. Let us take another look.' And I hastened towards the door. "'You won't find it,' said Mr. Grice at my elbow. "'I have looked. There is nothing but a pile of burned paper in the corner. "'By the way, what could that have been?' he asked of Mrs. Belden. "'I don't know, sir. She hadn't anything to burn unless it was the letter.' "'We will see about that,' I muttered, hurrying upstairs and bringing down the washbowl with its contents. "'If the letter was the one I saw in your hand at the post-office, it was in a yellow envelope.' "'Yes, sir.' Yellow envelopes burn differently from white paper. I ought to be able to tell the tinder made by a yellow envelope when I see it. "'Ah!' The letter has been destroyed. Here is a piece of the envelope. And I drew out of the heap of charred scraps a small bit less burnt than the rest and held it up. Then there is no use looking here for what the letter contained, said Mr. Grice, putting the washbowl aside. We will have to ask you, Mrs. Belden. 
but I don't know. It was directed to me, to be sure. But Hannah told me, when she first requested me to teach her how to write, that she expected such a letter. So I didn't open it when it came, but gave it to her just as it was. You, however, stayed by to see her read it? No, sir, I was in too much of a flurry. Mr. Raymond had just come, and I had no time to think of her. My own letter, too, was troubling me. But you surely asked her some questions about it before the day was out? Yes, sir, when I went up with her tea-things. But she had nothing to say. Hannah could be as reticent as any one I ever knew when she pleased. She didn't even admit it was from her mistress. Ah, then you thought it was from Miss Leavenworth? Why, yes, sir, what else was I to think, seeing that mark in the corner? Though, to be sure, it might have been put there by Mr. Clavering, she thoughtfully added. You say she was cheerful yesterday. Was she so after receiving this letter? Yes, sir, as far as I could see. I wasn't with her for long. The necessity I felt of doing something with the box in my charge. But perhaps Mr. Raymond has told you. Mr. Grice nodded. It was an exhausting evening, and quite put Hannah out of my head, but— Wait, cried Mr. Grice, and beckoning me into a corner, he whispered, Now comes in that experience of cues. While you are gone from the house, and before Mrs. Belden sees Hannah again, he has a glimpse of the girl bending over something in the corner of her room, which may very fairly be the wash-bowl we found there, after which he sees her swallow, in the most lively way, a dose of something from a bit of paper. Was there anything more? No, said I. Very well, then, he cried, going back to Mrs. Belden. But— But when I went upstairs to bed, I thought of the girl, and going to her door opened it. The light was extinguished, and she seemed asleep, so I closed it again and came out. Without speaking? Yes, sir. Did you notice how she was lying? Not particularly, I think, on her back. In something of the same position in which she was found this morning? Yes, sir. And that is all you can tell us, either of her letter or her mysterious death? All, sir. Mr. Grice straightened himself up. "'Mrs. Belden,' said he, "'you know Mr. Clavering's handwriting when you see it?' "'I do.' "'And Miss Leavenworth's?' "'Yes, sir.' "'Now, which of the two was upon the envelope of the letter you gave Hannah?' "'I couldn't say. It was a disguised handwriting, and might have been that of either, but I think—well—' that it was more like hers than his, though it wasn't like hers either. With a smile, Mr. Grice enclosed the confession in his hand in the envelope in which it had been found. You remember how large the letter was which you gave her? Oh, it was large, very large, one of the largest sort. And thick? Oh, yes, thick enough for two letters large enough and thick enough to contain this laying the confession folded and enveloped as it was before her yes sir giving it a look of startled amazement large enough and thick enough to contain that 
Mr. Grice's eyes, bright as diamonds, flashed around the room, and finally settled upon a fly traversing my coat-sleeve. "'Do you need to ask now,' he whispered in a low voice, "'where and from whom this so-called confession comes?' He allowed himself one moment of silent triumph, then rising began folding the papers on the table and putting them in his pocket. "'What are you going to do?' I asked, hurriedly approaching. He took me by the arm and led me across the hall into the sitting-room. "'I am going back to New York. I am going to pursue this matter. I am going to find out from whom came the poison which killed this girl, and by whose hand this vile forgery of a confession was written.' "'But,' said I, rather thrown off my balance by all this, "'Q and the coroner will be here presently. Won't you wait to see them?' "'No.' clues such as are given here must be followed while the trail is hot i can't afford to wait if i am not mistaken they have already come i remarked as a tramping of feet without announced that someone stood at the door that is so he assented hastening to let them in judging from common experience we had every reason to fear that an immediate stop would be put to all proceedings on our part as soon as the coroner was introduced upon the scene. But happily for us, and the interests at stake, Dr. Fink of R. proved to be a very sensible man. He had only to hear a true story of the affair to recognise at once its importance, and the necessity of the most cautious action in the matter. Further, by a sort of sympathy with Mr. Grice, all the more remarkable that he had never seen him before, he expressed himself as willing to enter into our plans, offering not only to allow us the temporary use of such papers as we desired, but even undertaking to conduct the necessary formalities of calling a jury and instituting an inquest in such a way as to give us time for the investigations we proposed to make. The delay was therefore short. Mr. Grice was enabled to take the 6.30 train for New York, and I to follow on the 10 p.m. The calling of a jury ordering of an autopsy and final adjournment of the inquiry till the following Tuesday, having all taken place in the interim. End of chapter 34。Chapter 35 of the Leavenworth Case by Anna Catherine Green this LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 35 Fine Work No hinge nor loop to hang a doubt on, But yet the pity of it, Iago, Oh, Iago, the pity of it, Iago, Othello. One sentence dropped by Mr. Grice before leaving R prepared me for his next move. The clue to this murder is supplied by the paper on which the confession is written. Find those from whose desk or portfolio this especial sheet was taken, and you will find the double murderer," he had said. Consequently, I was not surprised when, upon visiting his house early the next morning, I beheld him seated before a table, on which lay a lady's writing-desk and a pile of paper till told the desk was Eleanor's. Then I did show astonishment. What? said I. Are you not satisfied yet of her innocence? Oh, yes, but one must be thorough. 
no conclusion is valuable which is not preceded by a full and complete investigation why he cried casting his eyes complacently towards the fire-tongs i have even been rummaging through mr clavering's effects though the confession bears the proof upon its face that it could not have been written by him it is not enough to look for evidence where you expect to find it you must sometimes search for it where you don't now said he drawing the desk before him i don't anticipate finding anything here of a criminating character but it is among the possibilities that i may and that is enough for a detective did you see miss leavenworth this morning i asked as he proceeded to fulfil his intention by emptying the contents of the desk upon the table yes i was unable to procure what i desired without it and she behaved very handsomely gave me the desk with her own hands and never raised an objection to be sure she had little idea what i was looking for thought perhaps i wanted to make sure it did not contain the letter about which so much has been said but it would have made but little difference if she had known the truth this desk contains nothing we want was she well and had she heard of hannah's sudden death i asked in my irrepressible anxiety yes and feels it as you might expect her to but let us see what we have here said he pushing aside the desk and drawing towards him the stack of paper i have already referred to i found this pile just as you see it in a drawer of the library table at miss mary leavenworth's house in fifth avenue if i am not mistaken it will supply us with the clue we want but but this paper is square while that of the confession is of the size and shape of commercial note i know but you remember the sheet used in the confession was trimmed down let us compare the quality taking the confession from his pocket and the sheet from the pile before him he carefully compared them then held them out for my inspection a glance showed them to be alike in colour hold them up to the light said he i did so the appearance presented by both was precisely alike now let us compare the ruling and laying them both down on the table he placed the edges of the two sheets together the lines on one accommodated themselves to the lines on the other and that question was decided his triumph was assured i was convinced of it said he from the moment i pulled open that drawer and saw this mass of paper i knew the end was come but i objected in my old spirit of combativeness isn't there any room for doubt this paper is of the commonest kind every family on the block might easily have specimens of it in their library that isn't so he said it is letter size and that has gone out mr leavenworth used it for his manuscript or i doubt if it would have been found in his library but if you are still incredulous let us see what can be done and jumping up he carried the confession to the window looked at it this way and that and finally discovering what he wanted came back and laying it before me pointed out one of the lines of ruling which was markedly heavier than the rest and another which was so faint as to be almost indistinguishable 
"'Defects like these often run through a number of consecutive sheets,' said he. "'If we could find the identical half-choir from which this was taken, I might show you proof that would dispel every doubt.' And taking up the one that lay on top, he rapidly counted the sheets. There were but eight. "'It might have been taken from this one,' said he, but upon looking closely at the ruling he found it to be uniformly distinct. Hmm. "'That won't do,' came from his lips. The remainder of the paper, some dozen or so half-quires, looked undisturbed. Mr. Grice tapped his fingers on the table, and a frown crossed his face. "'Such a pretty thing, if it could have been done!' he longingly exclaimed. Suddenly he took up the next half-quire. "'Count the sheets,' said he, thrusting it towards me, and himself lifting another. I did as I was bid. Twelve. He counted his, and laid it down. "'Go on with the rest,' he cried. I counted the sheets in the next. Twelve. He counted those in the one following, and paused. Eleven. "'Count again,' I suggested. He counted again, and quietly put them aside. "'I made a mistake,' said he. But he was not to be discouraged. Taking another half-quire, he went through with the same operation. In vain. With a sigh of impatience, he flung it down on the table and looked up. "'Hello?' he cried. "'What is the matter?' "'There are but eleven sheets in this package,' I said, placing it in his hand. The excitement he immediately evinced was contagious. Oppressed as I was, I could not resist his eagerness. "'Oh, beautiful!' he exclaimed. "'Oh, beautiful! See? The light on the inside, the heavy one on the outside, and both in positions precisely corresponding to those on this sheet of Hannah's. What do you think now? Is any further proof necessary?' "'The veriest doubter must succumb before this,' returned I. With something like a considerate regard for my emotion he turned away. I am obliged to congratulate myself, notwithstanding the gravity of the discovery that has been made," said he. It is so neat, so very neat, and so conclusive. I declare I am myself astonished at the perfection of the thing. But what a woman that is!" he suddenly cried, in a tone of the greatest admiration. What an intellect she has! What shrewdness! What skill! I declare it is almost a pity to entrap a woman who has done as well as this, taken a sheet from the very bottom of the pile, trimmed it into another shape, and then, remembering the girl couldn't write, put what she had to say into coarse, awkward printing, Hannah-like. Splendid! Or would have been, if any other man than myself had had this thing in charge and, all animated and glowing with his enthusiasm, he eyed the chandelier above him, as if it were the embodiment of his own sagacity. Sunk in despair, I let him go on. "'Could she have done any better?' he now asked. "'Watched, circumscribed as she was, could she have done any better? I hardly think so. The fact of Hannah's having learned to write after she left here was fatal.' No, she could not have provided against that contingency. 
Mr. Grice, I here interposed, unable to endure this any longer, did you have an interview with Miss Mary Leavenworth this morning? No, said he, it was not in the line of my present purpose to do so. I doubt, indeed, if she knew I was in her house. A servant-maid who has a grievance is a very valuable assistant to a detective. With Molly at my side, I didn't need to pay my respects to the mistress. Mr. Grice, I asked, after another moment of silent self-congratulation on his part, and of desperate self-control on mine, what do you propose to do now? You have followed your clue to the end, and are satisfied. Such knowledge as this is the precursor of action. Hm. We will see, he returned, going to his private desk and bringing out the box of papers which we had no opportunity of looking at while in R. First, let us examine these documents, and see if they do not contain some hint which may be of service to us and taking out the dozen or so loose sheets which had been torn from Eleanor's diary, he began turning them over. While doing this, I took occasion to examine the contents of the box. I found them to be precisely what Mrs. Belden had led me to expect, a certificate of marriage between Mary and Mr. Clavering, and a half-dozen or more letters. While glancing over the former, a short exclamation from Mr. Grice startled me into looking up. "'What is it?' I cried. He thrust into my hand the leaves of Eleanor's diary. "'Read,' said he. "'Most of it is a repetition of what you have already heard from Mrs. Belden, though given from a different standpoint. But there is one passage in it which, if I am not mistaken, opens up the way to an explanation of this murder such as we have not had yet. Begin at the beginning. You won't find it dull.' "'Dull?' Eleanor's feelings and thought, during that anxious time, dull. Mustering up my self-possession, I spread out the leaves in their order, and commenced. R. July 6th. Two days after they got there, you perceive,' Mr. Grice explained. "'A gentleman was introduced to us to-day upon the piazza whom I cannot forbear mentioning, first because he is the most perfect specimen of manly beauty I ever beheld, and secondly, because Mary, who is usually so voluble where gentlemen are concerned, had nothing to say when, in the privacy of our own apartment, I questioned her as to the effect his appearance and conversation had made upon her. The fact that he is an Englishman may have something to do with this, uncle's antipathy to every one of that nation being as well known to her as to me. But somehow I cannot feel satisfied of this. Her experience with Charlie Somerville has made me suspicious. What if the story of last summer were to be repeated here, with an Englishman for the hero? But I will not allow myself to contemplate such a possibility. Uncle will return in a few days, and then all communication with one who, however prepossessing, is of a family and race with whom it is impossible for us to unite ourselves, must of necessity cease. I doubt if I should have thought twice of all this if Mr. Clavering had not betrayed upon his introduction to Mary such intense and unrestrained admiration. July the 8th. The old story is to be repeated. Mary not only submits to the attentions of Mr. Clavering, but encourages them. Today she sat two hours at the piano, singing over to him her favourite songs, and to-night, 
but I will not put down every trivial circumstance that comes under my observation. It is unworthy of me. And yet how can I shut my eyes when the happiness of so many I love is at stake? July the 11th. If Mr. Clavering is not absolutely in love with Mary, he is on the verge of it. He is a very fine-looking man, and too honourable to be trifled with in this reckless fashion. July 13th. Mary's beauty blossoms like the rose. She was absolutely wonderful to-night in scarlet and silver. I think her smile the sweetest I ever beheld, and in this I am sure Mr. Clavering passionately agrees with me. He never looked away from her to-night. But it is not so easy to read her heart. To be sure, she appears anything but indifferent to his fine appearance, strong sense, and devoted affection. But did she not deceive us into believing she loved Charlie Somerville? In her case, blush and smile go for little, I fear. Would it not be wiser under the circumstances to say, I hope? July 17th. Oh, my heart! Mary came into my room this evening and absolutely startled me by falling at my side and burying her face in my lap. Oh, Eleanor, Eleanor, she murmured, quivering with what seemed to me very happy sobs. But when I strove to lift her head to my breast, she slid from my arms, and drawing herself up into her old attitude of reserved pride, raised her hand as if to impose silence and haughtily left the room. There is but one interpretation to put upon this. Mr. Clavering has expressed his sentiments, and she is filled with that reckless delight, which in its first flush makes one insensible to the existence of barriers which have hitherto been deemed impassable. When will Uncle come? July the 18th. Little did I think when I wrote the above that Uncle was already in the house. He arrived unexpectedly on the last train, and came into my room just as I was putting away my diary. Looking a little careworn, he took me in his arms, and then asked for Mary. I dropped my head, and could not help stammering, as I replied, that she was in her own room. Instantly his love took alarm, and leaving me, he hastened to her apartment, where I afterwards learned he came upon her sitting abstractedly before her dressing-table, with Mr. Clavering's family ring on her finger. I do not know what followed. An unhappy scene, I fear for Mary is ill this morning, and Uncle exceedingly melancholy and stern. Afternoon. We are an unhappy family. Uncle not only refuses to consider for a moment the question of Mary's alliance with Mr. Clavering, but even goes so far as to demand his instant and unconditional dismissal. The knowledge of this came to me in the most distressing way. Recognising the state of affairs, but secretly rebelling against a prejudice which seemed destined to separate two persons otherwise fitted for each other, I sought Uncle's presence this morning after breakfast, and attempted to plead their cause, but he almost instantly stopped me with the remark, "'You are the last one, Eleanor, who should seek to promote this marriage.' Trembling with apprehension, I asked him why, for the reason that by so doing you work entirely for your own interest.' More and more troubled, I begged him to explain himself. "'I mean,' said he, "'that if Mary disobeys me by marrying this Englishman, I shall disinherit her, and substitute your name for hers in my will, as well as in my affection.' For a moment everything swam before my eyes. "'You will never make me so wretched,' I entreated. "'I will make you my heiress if Mary persists in her present determination,' he declared, and without further word sternly left the room. 
what could I do but fall on my knees and pray? Of all in this miserable house I am the most wretched. To supplant her, but I shall not be called upon to do it. Mary will give up Mr. Clavering. There, exclaimed Mr. Grice, what do you think of that? Isn't it becoming plain enough what was Mary's motive for this murder? But go on, let us hear what followed. With sinking heart I continued. The next entry is dated July 19th and runs thus. I was right. After a long struggle with Uncle's invincible will, Mary has consented to dismiss Mr. Clavering. I was in the room when she made known her decision, and I shall never forget our uncle's look of gratified pride as he clasped her in his arms and called her his own true heart. He has evidently been very much exercised over this matter, and I cannot but feel greatly relieved that affairs have terminated so satisfactorily. But Mary, what is there in her manner that vaguely disappoints me? I cannot say. I only know that I felt a powerful shrinking overwhelm me when she turned her face to me and asked if I were satisfied now. But I conquered my feelings and held out my hand. She did not take it. July 26th. How long the days are. The shadow of our late trial is upon me yet. I cannot shake it off. I seem to see Mr. Clavering's despairing face wherever I go. How is it that Mary preserves her cheerfulness? If she does not love him, I should think the respect which she must feel for his disappointment would keep her from the levity at least. Uncle has gone away again. Nothing I could say sufficed to keep him. July 28th. It has all come out. Mary has only nominally separated from Mr. Clavering. She still cherishes the idea of one day uniting herself to him in marriage. The fact was revealed to me in a strange way, not necessary to mention here, and has since been confirmed by Mary herself. I admire the man, she declares, and have no intention of giving him up. Then why not tell Uncle so? I asked. Her only answer was a bitter smile, and a short, I'll leave that for you to do. July 30th, Midnight Worn completely out, but before my blood cools, let me write. Mary is a wife. I have just returned from seeing her give her hand to Henry Clavering. Strange that I can write it without quivering when my whole soul is one flush of indignation and revolt. But let me state the facts. Having left my room for a few minutes this morning, I returned to find on my dressing-table a note from Mary, in which she informed me that she was going to take Mrs. Belden for a drive, and would not be back for some hours. Convinced, as I had every reason to be, that she was on her way to meet Mr. Clavering, I only stopped to put on my hat. There the diary ceased. "'She was probably interrupted by Mary at this point,' explained Mr. Grice. "'But we have come upon the one thing we wanted to know. Mr. Leavenworth threatened to supplant Mary with Eleanor, if she persisted in marrying contrary to his wishes. She did so marry, and to avoid the consequences of her act, she—' "'Say no more,' I returned, convinced at last. "'It is only too clear.' Mr. Grice rose. "'But the writer of these words is saved,' I went on, trying to grasp the one comfort left me. "'No one who reads this diary will ever dare to insinuate she is capable of committing a crime.' "'Assuredly not. The diary settles that matter effectually.' 
I tried to be man enough to think of that and nothing else, to rejoice in her deliverance and let every other consideration go, but in this I did not succeed. But Mary, her cousin, almost her sister, is lost, I muttered. Mr. Grice thrust his hands into his pockets, and for the first time showed some evidence of secret disturbance. "'Yes, I'm afraid she is. I really am afraid she is.' Then, after a pause, during which I felt a certain thrill of vague hope, "'Such an entrancing creature, too. It is a pity. It positively is a pity. I declare now that the thing is worked up. I begin to feel almost sorry we have succeeded so well. Strange but true. If there was the least loophole out of it,' he muttered, "'but there isn't. The thing is clear as A, B, C.' Suddenly he rose and began pacing the floor very thoughtfully, casting his glances here, there, and everywhere except at me, although I believe now, as then, my face was all he saw. "'Would it be a very great grief to you, Mr. Raymond, if Miss Mary Leavenworth should be arrested on this charge of murder?' he asked, pausing before a sort of tank in which two or three disconsolate-looking fishes were slowly swimming about. "'Yes,' said I, "'it would, a very great grief.' "'Yet it must be done,' said he, though with a strange lack of his usual decision as an honest official trusted to bring the murderer of Mr. Leavenworth to the notice of the proper authorities, I have got to do it. Again that strange thrill of hope at my heart induced by his peculiar manner. Then my reputation as a detective. I ought surely to consider that. I am not so rich or so famous that I can afford to forget all that a success like this may bring me. No, lovely as she is, I have got to push it through." But even as he said this he became still more thoughtful, gazing down into the murky depths of the wretched tank before him, with such an intentness I half expected the fascinated fishes to rise from the water and return his gaze. What was in his mind? After a little while he turned his indecision utterly gone. "'Mr. Raymond, come here again at three. I shall then have my report ready for the superintendent. I should like to show it to you first, so don't fail me.' There was something so repressed in his expression, I could not prevent myself from venturing one question. "'Is your mind made up?' I asked. "'Yes,' he returned, but in a peculiar tone, and with a peculiar gesture and you are going to make the arrest you speak of? Come at three. End of chapter 35「Chapter 36 of the Leavenworth Case by Anna Catherine Green This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 36 Gathered Threads this is the short and long of it. Merry Wives of Windsor Promptly at the hour named I made my appearance at Mr. Grice's door. I found him awaiting me on the threshold. "'I have met you,' said he gravely, "'for the purpose of requesting you not to speak during the coming interview. 
I am to do the talking, you the listening. Neither are you to be surprised at anything I may do or say. I am in a facetious mood, he did not look so, and may take it into my head to address you by another name than your own. If I do, don't mind it. Above all, don't talk. Remember that. And without waiting to meet my look of doubtful astonishment, he led me softly upstairs. The room in which I had been accustomed to meet him was at the top of the first flight, but he took me past that into what appeared to be the garret story, where, after many cautionary signs, he ushered me into a room of singularly strange and unpromising appearance. In the first place it was darkly gloomy, being lighted simply by a very dim and dirty skylight. Next it was hideously empty, a pine-table and two hard-backed chairs, set face to face at each end of it, being the only articles in the room. Lastly it was surrounded by several closed doors, with blurred and ghostly ventilators over their tops, which, being round, looked like the blank eyes of a row of staring mummies. Altogether it was a lugubrious spot, and in the present state of my mind made me feel as if something unearthly and threatening lay crouched in the very atmosphere. Nor, sitting there cold and desolate, could I imagine that the sunshine glowed without, or that life, beauty, and pleasure paraded the streets below. Mr. Grice's expression, as he took a seat and beckoned me to do the same, may have had something to do with this strange sensation. It was so mysteriously and sombrely expectant. "'You'll not mind the room,' said he. In so muffled a tone I scarcely heard him. "'It's an awful lonesome spot, I know. But folks with such matters before them mustn't be too particular as to the places in which they hold their consultations, if they don't want all the world to know as much as they do.' "'Smith!'—and he gave me an admonitory shake of his finger, while his voice took a more distinct tone—'I have done the business. The reward is mine. The assassin of Mr. Leavenworth is found, and in two hours will be in custody. Do you want to know who it is?'—leaning forward with every appearance of eagerness in tone and expression. I stared at him in great amazement. Had anything new come to light?' any great change taken place in his conclusions? All this preparation could not be for the purpose of acquainting me with what I already knew, yet he cut short my conjectures with a low expressive chuckle. "'It was a long chase, I tell you,' raising his voice still more, "'a tight go, a woman in the business too, but all the women in the world can't pull the wool over the eyes of Ebenezer Grice when he is on a trail, and the assassin of Mr. Leavenworth, and—here his voice became actually shrill in his excitement—and of Hannah Chester is found. "'Hush!' he went on, though I had neither spoken nor made any move. "'You didn't know Hannah Chester was murdered? Well, she wasn't in one sense of the word.' but in another she was, and by the same hand that killed the old gentleman. How do I know this? Look here. This scrap of paper was found on the floor of her room. It had a few particles of white powder sticking to it. Those particles were tested last night, and found to be poison. But you say the girl took it herself, that she was a suicide. 
you are right she did take it herself and it was a suicide but who terrified her into the act of self-destruction why the one who had the most reason to fear her testimony of course but the proof you say well sir this girl left a confession behind her throwing the onus of the whole crime on a certain party believed to be innocent this confession was a forged one known from three facts first that the paper upon which it was written was unobtainable by the girl in the place where she was secondly that the words used therein were printed in coarse awkward characters whereas hannah thanks to the teaching of the woman under whose care she has been since the murder has learned to write very well thirdly that the story told in the confession does not agree with the one related by the girl herself now the fact of a forged confession throwing the guilt upon an innocent party having been found in the keeping of this ignorant girl killed by a dose of poison taken with the fact here stated that on the morning of the day on which she killed herself the girl received from some one manifestly acquainted with the customs of the leavenworth family a letter large enough and thick enough to contain the confession folded as it was when found makes it almost certain to my mind that the murderer of mr leavenworth sent this powder and this so-called confession to the girl meaning her to use them precisely as she did for the purpose of throwing off suspicion from the right track and of destroying herself at the same time for as you know dead men tell no tales he paused and looked at the dingy skylight above us why did the air seem to grow heavier and heavier why did i shudder in vague apprehension i knew all this before why did it strike me then as something new but who was this you ask ah that is the secret that is the bit of knowledge which is to bring me fame and fortune but secret or not i don't mind telling you lowering his voice and rapidly raising it again the fact is i can't keep it to myself it burns like a new dollar in my pocket smith my boy the murderer of mr leavenworth but stay who does the world say it is whom do the papers point at and shake their heads over a woman a young beautiful bewitching woman <laughs> the papers are right it is a woman young and beautiful and bewitching too but what one ah that's the question there is more than one woman in this affair since hannah's death i have heard it openly advanced that she was the guilty party in the crime Pah! others cry it is the niece who was so unequally dealt with by her uncle in his will bah again but folks are not without some justification for this latter assertion eleanor leavenworth did know more of this matter than appeared worse than that eleanor leavenworth stands in a position of positive peril to-day if you don't think so let me show you what the detectives have against her first there is the fact that a handkerchief with her name on it was found stained with pistol grease upon the scene of murder a place which she explicitly denies having entered for twenty-four hours previous to the discovery of the dead body secondly 
the fact that she not only evinced terror when confronted with this bit of circumstantial evidence, but manifested a decided disposition, both at this time and others, to mislead inquiry, shirking a direct answer to some questions, and refusing all answers to others. Thirdly, that an attempt was made by her to destroy a certain letter evidently relating to this crime. Fourthly, that the key to the library door was seen in her possession. All this, taken with the fact that the fragments of the letter, which this same lady attempted to destroy within an hour after the inquest, were afterwards put together, and were found to contain a bitter denunciation of one of Mr. Leavenworth's nieces, by a gentleman we will call X, in other words, an unknown quantity, makes out a dark case against you, especially as, after the investigations revealed the fact that a secret underlay the history of the Leavenworth family, that, unknown to the world at large, and Mr. Leavenworth in particular, a marriage ceremony had been performed a year before in a little town called F, between a Miss Leavenworth and this same X, that, in other words, the unknown gentleman, who, in the letter partly destroyed by Miss Eleanor Leavenworth, complained to Mr. Leavenworth of the treatment received by him from one of his nieces, was, in fact, the secret husband of that niece and that, moreover, this same gentleman, under an assumed name, called on the night of the murder at the house of Mr. Leavenworth, and asked for Miss Eleanor's. Now, you see, with all this against her, Eleanor Leavenworth is lost, if it cannot be proved, first that the articles testifying against her, viz. the handkerchief, letter, and key, passed after the murder through other hands before reaching hers, and secondly that someone else had even a stronger reason than she for desiring Mr. Leavenworth's death at this time. Smith, my boy, both of these hypotheses have been established by me. By dint of moling into old secrets, and following unpromising clues, I have finally come to the conclusion that not Eleanor Leavenworth, dark as are the appearances against her, but another woman, beautiful as she, and fully as interesting, is the true criminal. In short, that her cousin, the exquisite Mary, is the murderer of Mr. Leavenworth, and by inference of Hannah Chester also. He brought this out with such force, and with such a look of triumph and appearance of having led up to it, that I was for the moment dumbfounded, and started as if I had not known what he was going to say. The stir I made seemed to awake an echo. Something like a suppressed cry was in the air about me. All the room appeared to breathe horror and dismay. Yet when, in the excitement of this fancy, I half turned round to look, I found nothing but the blank eyes of those dull ventilators staring upon me. "'You are taken aback,' Mr. Grice went on. "'I don't wonder. Every one else is engaged in watching the movements of Eleanor Leavenworth. I only know where to put my hand upon the real culprit. You shake your head,' another fiction. "'You don't believe me. 
think I am deceived. Ha, <laughs> ha! Ebenezer Grice deceived after a month of hard work. You are as bad as Miss Leavenworth herself, who has so little faith in my sagacity that she offered me, of all men, an enormous reward if I would find for her the assassin of her uncle. But that is neither here nor there. You have your doubts, and you are waiting for me to solve them. Well, nothing is easier. Know first that on the morning of the inquest I made one or two discoveries not to be found in the records, viz. that the handkerchief picked up, as I have said, in Mr. Leavenworth's library, had notwithstanding its stains of pistol grease a decided perfume lingering about it. Going to the dressing-table of the two ladies, I sought for that perfume, and found it in Mary's room, not Eleanor's. This led me to examine the pockets of the dresses respectively worn by them the evening before. In that of Eleanor I found a handkerchief, presumably the one she had carried at that time, but in Mary's there was none, nor did I see any lying about her room as if tossed down on her retiring. The conclusion I drew from this was that she, and not Eleanor, had carried the handkerchief into her uncle's room, a conclusion emphasised by the fact privately communicated to me by one of the servants, that Mary was in Eleanor's room when the basket of clean clothes was brought up with this handkerchief lying on top. But knowing the liability we are to mistake in such matters as these, I made another search in the library, and came across a very curious thing. Lying on the table was a penknife, and scattered on the floor beneath, in close proximity to the chair, were two or three minute portions of wood, freshly chipped off from the leg of the table all of which looked as if some one of nervous disposition had been sitting there, whose hand, in a moment of self-forgetfulness, had caught up the knife and unconsciously whittled the table. A little thing, you say, but when the question is, which of the two ladies, one of a calm and self-possessed nature, the other restless in her ways and excitable in her disposition, was in a certain spot at a certain time, it is these little things that become almost deadly in their significance. No one who has been with these two women an hour can hesitate as to whose delicate hand made that cut in Mr. Leavenworth's library table. But we are not done. I distinctly overheard Eleanor accuse her cousin of this deed. Now such a woman as Eleanor Leavenworth has proved herself to be never would accuse a relative of crime without the strongest and most substantial reasons. First, she must have been sure her cousin stood in a position of such emergency that nothing but the death of her uncle could release her from it. Secondly, that her cousin's character was of such a nature she would not hesitate to relieve herself from a desperate emergency by the most desperate of means. And lastly, been in possession of some circumstantial evidence against her cousin, seriously corroborative of her suspicions. Smith, all this was true of Eleanor Leavenworth. As to the character of her cousin, she has had ample proof of her ambition, love of money, caprice and deceit, 
it having been Mary Leavenworth, and not Eleanor, as was first supposed, who had contracted the secret marriage already spoken of. Of the critical position in which she stood, let the threat once made by Mr. Leavenworth to substitute her cousin's name for hers in his will, in case she had married this ex, be remembered, as well as the tenacity with which Mary clung to her hopes of future fortune, while for the corroborative testimony of her guilt which Eleanor is supposed to have had, remember that previous to the key having been found in Eleanor's possession, she had spent some time in her cousin's room, and that it was at Mary's fireplace the half-burned fragments of that letter were found, and you have the outline of a report which in an hour's time from this will lead to the arrest of Mary Leavenworth as the assassin of her uncle and benefactor. A silence ensued, which, like the darkness of Egypt, could be felt. Then a great and terrible cry rang through the room, and a man's form, rushing from I knew not where, shot by me and fell at Mr. Grice's feet, shrieking out, "'It is a lie! A lie! Mary Leavenworth is innocent, as a babe unborn! I am the murderer of Mr. Leavenworth! I! I!' I. It was Truman Harwell. End of chapter thirty six.